Al-Bashir, your source of Islamic literature, presents Al-Akhirah, the afterlife, narrated by Imam Anwar Al-Awlaqi. Alhamdulillah, salatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Number eight, the spread of peace. There is a hadith that says that there will be spread of peace and there is a hadith that says that there will be a spread of fitna. And these two were mentioned in the same hadith. So it must be in different times. Whenever there is Islam, there will be peace. Whenever there is a lack of a discipline in the, for the people in their religion, when there is a lack of following of the religion, then there will be corruption and there will be fitna. And there will be a lot of uh, killing. In this ayah, which is the spread of peace, we can find it in a few ahadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa One of them, Khabab ibn al-Arat. In Mecca, he came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and Rasulullah was leaning on al-Ka'bah, was sitting next to al-Ka'bah. And Khabab al-Arat came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and said, he was complaining about this, the difficult situation that the Sahaba were going through in Mecca in the early years of Islam. So he came to Rasulullah and told him, aren't you going to make dua for us? Aren't you going to ask Allah to give us victory? Rasulullah was leaning down, he sat straight, and anger was apparent on his face. And Rasulullah then said, the ones before you, they would bring one of them, they would put them in a hole in the ground, and they would bring a saw, they would put it on top of their head, and they would cut them into two pieces, they would never give up their religion. And they would bring another person, another Muslim, and they would comb him with combs of iron until they separate the flesh from the bones. And the person would not give up their religion. But you are people who are in a hurry. Even though Khabbab and the Sahaba were going through suffering, difficult situation, Rasulullah said, you have to have patience. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. The victory of Allah will arrive. But don't be in a hurry. You have to have patience. And Rasulullah said, there were people before you who went through Trials that are more than what you have gone through. I mean, imagine having a saw on the top of the head of somebody and they divide them into two pieces or they separate the flesh from the bones by combs of iron. Look at the, the suffering that some people went through before and they never gave up their religion. And then Rasulullah says, but Allah will complete this religion. Allah will give victory through this religion until the traveler would leave from Sana'a to Hadramaut and not fear anyone but Allah and the wolf on their sheep. There will be peace. And the area of Sana'a and Hadramaut in that time in Yemen was an area, a tribal area like the rest of Arabia. There wasn't a lot of security. Whenever you travel, you have to have security guards with you. Whenever any caravan would go, it would be accompanied by an army to protect it. Rasulullah said that the traveler can leave from Sana'a to Hadramaut fearing no one but Allah and the wolf, the animals, the beasts. And this did happen in the early years of Islam. And it would happen again in the future. In the other hadith, Rasulullah let me read to you the nas of the hadith. An Khabbab ibn al-Arat qala shakuna ila Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa mutwassidun burdatan lahu fi zil al-Ka'bah. Qulna lahu ala tastansiru lana, ala tad'u allaha lana. Qala kana al-rajilu fi man qablakum yuhfaru lahu fi al-ardi fayuj'alu fihi fayuj'a'u bil-minshari fayuj'a'u ala ra'si fayushakku bithnatayn. Wa ma yasudduhu thalika andinah. وَيُمْشَطُ بِأَمْشَاطِ الْحَدِيدِ مَا دُونَ لَحْمِهِ مِنْ عَظْمٍ أَوْ عَصَبٍ وَمَا يُصُدُّهُ ذَلِكَ عَنْ دِينِهِ وَاللَّهِ لَيُتِمَّنَّ اللَّهُ هَذَا الْأَمْرِ حَتَّى يَسِيرَ الرَّاكِبُ مِنْ صَنْعَاءَ إِلَى حَضْرَمَوْتِ لَا يَخَافُ إِلَّا اللَّهَ أَوْ الذِّئْبَ عَلَى غَنَمِهِ وَلَكِنَّكُمْ تَسْتَعْجِلُونَ رواه البخاري The other hadith قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا تقوم الساعة حتى تعود أرض العرب مروجا وأنهارا 
وحتى يسير الراكب بين العراق ومكة لا يخاف إلا ضلال الطريق رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم says a time will come when the land of the Arabs will be rivers and forest it will be green and the traveler would leave from Iraq to Mecca fearing no one but getting lost they would have no fear but getting lost and there's a third hadith and this is by the way this hadith that I just narrated is narrated by Ahmed there's a third hadith narrated by Al-Bukhari Rasulullah was visited by Uday ibn Hatim Uday ibn Hatim was the leader of a big Arab tribe in the north of Arabia and they were Christian he was such a big figure he came to visit Rasulullah his father was the most famous in terms of generosity Hatim al-Tai he came to visit Rasulullah and he came in with a cross hanging on his chest Rasulullah they have taken their priests and their rabbis as gods beside Allah and then this caused a conversation between him and Rasulullah eventually what happened is he was sitting with Rasulullah there is a person who came in asking for help the situation of the Muslims at that time was difficult poverty they were going through trials Rasulullah is giving da'wah to Uday ibn Hatim and Uday is seeing the situation of the Muslims poverty simple people many of them were slaves servants some of them don't come from the glorious tribal backgrounds and Rasulullah is giving da'wah to this man who comes from a very famous family he's very wealthy he's a chief of his people maybe he felt that I mean Islam is not for him Islam is for the for other people for the poor people Rasulullah noticed that and he told Uday ibn Hatim don't base your opinion on what you see from the poverty and the difficulty of my people a time will come when there will be so much wealth in this ummah and there will be so much security in this ummah that the traveler would leave from Al-Hira a woman would leave from Al-Hira to Mecca and she would not fear anyone but Allah Uday ibn Hatim said when Rasulullah told me that I was telling myself فَأَيْنَ دُعَارُ طَيْءٍ what about the burglars of Tay? His tribe was Tay. And he knew his tribe. His tribe were armed robbers. They would rob any traveler who's going through that area. Nobody can pass by without them taxing anybody who goes through. They would kill people corrupt. These were gangs in the desert. And he knows the, his people because that's, he's their leader. He's the leader of Tay. He was telling himself, what is Rasulullah talking about? How can a woman leave from Al-Hira to Mecca fearing no one but Allah? What about Du'ar Tay? What about the robbers and the tribes of Tay? Uday ibn Hatim said, I lived and I saw that with my own eyes. I saw the security. The hadith is, I just mentioned summarized version of it. قَالَ فَإِنْ طَالَتْ بِكَ حَيَاهِ لَتَرَيَنَّ الضَّعِينَةِ تَرْتَحِلُ مِنَ الْحِيرَةِ حَتَّى تَطُوفَ بِالْكَعْبَةِ لَا تَخَافُ أَحَدًا إِلَّا اللَّهِ قُلْتُ فِيمَا بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَ نَفْسِي فَأَيْنَ دُعَارُ he said, where are the robbers and the tribes of Tay who have turned the land, who have inflamed the land? It's like they, they burned everything down. The complete spread of peace will be in the time of Isa ibn Maryam and the time of Al-Mahdi. That is when it will be absolute peace. We have seen bits and pieces of that peace, but we have not seen the security, the complete security yet. That would happen in the time of Isa ibn Maryam. The ninth sign is the appearance of a fire in Hijaz. Rasulullah says, قَالَ لَا تَقُومُ السَّاعَةَ حَتَّى تَخْرُجَ نَارٌ مِّنْ أَرْضِ الْحِجَازِ تُضِيُّ عَنَاقَ الْإِبْلِي بِبُصْرَةِ Rasulullah says, 
the hour will not be established till a fire will come out of the land of Hijaz and it will throw light on the necks of the camels of Busra. Busra is a town in Asham in Syria. It's called Busra. This is different than Al-Basra in Iraq. Busra is an Asham in Syria. This fire is going to come out in the land of Hijaz. Hijaz is Medina and Mecca. That area is Hijaz from Taif all the way north. That is called Hijaz. A fire will come out in the land of Hijaz. The fire will be so big that the light of the fire will reach to Asham, Syria, which is hundreds of miles away. This sign occurred. This fire was actually a volcano. A volcano close to Medina. And it has been seen in the time of An-Nawawi. An-Nawawi says, in year 654 Hijri, in our time, a fire, a big fire came out in Medina. ويقول ابن كثير إن الأعراب ببصرة شاهدوا أعناق الإبل في ضوء النهار ابن كثير says that the Bedouins were able to see the spark of light in Busra on the necks of their camels the spark of light, it's like a lightning they would see that light ويقول ابن حجر والذي ظهر لي أن النار المذكورة هي التي ظهرت بنواحي المدينة كما فهم القرطبي وغيره ابن حجر says we think that this volcano that happened in Medina is the volcano that Rasulullah spoke about and was described by Al-Qurtubi and other scholars. So this sign already happened in Medina uh, near 654. The tenth sign is talking about the wars with the Turks, the Turkish people. This is not particularly talking about the people living in Anatolia or Turkey. Because the people of Turkey, they immigrated from the land of Turkoman. The Turkoman people who live in Turkestan and it's an extension of tribes that go all the way to China, to the areas of Mongolia. And they have distinctive features. Rasulullah says in the hadith narrated by Al-Bukhari, لا تقوم الساعة حتى تقاتل الترك صغار الأعين حمر الوجوه ذلف الأنوف كأن وجوههم المجان المطرقة ولا تقوم الساعة حتى تقاتل قوما نعالهم الشعر رواه البخاري Rasulullah says the hour will not be established until you fight with the Turks people with small eyes red faces and flat noses their faces look will look like shields coated with leather the hour will not be established till you fight with people whose shoes are made of hair Rasulullah gave description of them that they have round faces the faces are round the eyes are small and the noses are a bit flat and this is the exact distinctive features of the people living in that area. If you saw the people, especially from Mongolia, and the Tatarik, the people who go back to Tataristan, uh, that is their, their description. Wide faces with a reddish color and small eyes. And they used to wear clothes made out of the wool of camels. Ni'alam al-Sha'r. Their clothes are wool, their shoes are wool. These exact, subhanAllah, you, know, you, you see the miracle in the ahadith of Rasulullah The Muslims fought with people with the exact description. And the beginning of the battles of them was quite early on. And the battles lasted for a very long time between the Muslims and these Turkish tribes. And then what happened is that the Mongolians, who are considered to be from these people, they actually swept over the Muslim world and destroyed it under the leadership of Genghis Khan and Taymur Lenk and Hulako. These leaders, they just destroyed the world. 
not only the Muslim world, but they even went into Eastern Europe and into the land of Russia, and they just, wherever they go, they would conquer. And they were very strong and forceful people, huge armies, very strong horsemen. And Allah, when they entered into Baghdad, they just destroyed the whole city. It is said that they killed about two million. Two million Muslims were killed in Baghdad, and they would take their skulls, they would take the heads of the Muslims, and they built out of it a pyramid. And then they went into the library of Baghdad, and they took all of the books, and they used it as a bridge for them to cross over the Euphrates River. They took books, original copies. That is the heritage of the Muslims. It's the work of thousands of Muslim minds. Original manuscripts, because there was no uh, printing machines in that time. You might have only one copy of a certain book. They took everything in that library, the biggest library in the world at that time. They made a bridge over the river. It is said that the color of the water of the river changed for days. It was black because of the ink in the books. They destroyed the Muslim world. But subhanAllah, Rasulullah says, لا تقوم الساعة حتى تقاتل قوما نعالهم الشعر وحتى تقاتل الترك صغار الأعين حمر الوجوه ذلف الأنوف كأن وجوههم المجان المطرقة وتجدون من خير الناس أشدهم كراهية لهذا الأمر حتى يقع فيه والناس معاد خيارهم في الجاهلية خيارهم في الإسلام. رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم says you're gonna fight with the Turks and he gave the description and then رسول الله said and you will find some of the best people in this religion are people who started as the worst enemies of this religion until they enter the religion of Islam. And the rest of you in Jahiliyyah in the time of ignorance are the best of you in Islam if you learn. These people, the Mongolians, even though they were victorious and they were the rulers of the Muslim world, they adopted the Islamic religion. Now you never find that. It doesn't happen in history that the victorious adopts the religion of the losers. Usually it's the opposite. The losing people they follow the religion of the winners. You find that people who are in a state of defeat, they try to imitate the strong and victorious. But in the situation of Al-Maghul, it was different. They were the ones ruling the Muslim world. They were destroying everything. But subhanAllah, they ended up becoming Muslim. Even though it took them a long time for them to change their personalities. I mean, in the time of Ibn Taymiyyah, the Tatar that were fighting the Muslims at that time were already Muslims. But they were still destroying the Muslim world. It took them a while until they got themselves into the religion and understood the religion. And the Khilaf al-Uthmaniyyah, the Ottomans, who are they? They are Turkish people, small Turkish tribe, who immigrated from the Central Asian area into the land of Turkey, which was the Byzantine Empire at the time. Al-Khatoriya al-Romaniya al-Byzantiyya. It was the Eastern Roman Byzantine Empire. This small tribe of the Turks, they went and they lived in Anatolia. They settled in a certain area and it was part of the Roman Empire. And then, even though it was a small tribe, they began fighting with the Romans around them. They would fight with this village and fight with that village and fight with this town. Small fights, skirmishes here and there. And slowly and slowly they were expanding their territory. From a small patch of land, it was growing bigger and bigger and bigger until they completely destroyed the Roman Empire. They destroyed the Byzantine Empire, even though it just started as a tribe. And then they extended and they became the Khulafa of the Muslim world. And it started by one tribe, small tribe, but expanded and became larger and larger and larger until they ruled all over the Muslim world. And these were people whom Rasulullah described in the hadith. But subhanAllah, you can find 
as Rasulullah said, you would find that some of the worst enemies of this religion end up becoming some of the best people in this religion, like Umar ibn Khattab, for example. He was an enemy of Islam in the beginning. But then, subhanAllah, he ended up becoming one of the best of the Sahaba of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Number 11, the loss of trust. Baya There is a sign of the Day of Judgment of Marajat Uhudam, when the people, they are dishonest. But this sign over here is talking about a particular type of dishonesty, or a particular type of untrustworthiness. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa says in the hadith narrated by Al-Bukhari, إِذَا ضُيَّعَتِ الْأَمَانَةِ فَانْتَظِرِ السَّاعَةِ if trust is lost, then wait for the hour to occur. If there's no more trust, then wait for the hour. That's it. It's the end of the world. The Sahabi asked Rasulullah what do you mean by the loss of trust? How will it be lost? Rasulullah said, when authority is given to those who do not deserve it, then wait for the hour. When authority is given to the people who do not deserve it. When the leaders are sufaha. Sufaha are the people who have a lack of mind. A lack of understanding and fiqh and religion. When they become the leaders, then wait for the hour. And subhanAllah, the issue of leadership and authority. There's another hadith Rasulullah says, If you appoint someone in a position of leadership, a position of authority, and you know that there is a Muslim who would do a better job, then you have cheated the Muslims. If you appoint somebody in a position of leadership, you have the authority to appoint people, or you're voting for someone even, and you appoint a person to a position of leadership, and you know that there's someone better, who can do a better job, who has a better deen, religion, then you have cheated the Muslims. Therefore, position of authority is a trust. It is an amana. And whenever we find that the amana is lost, the trust is lost, and the people with no understanding, with no religion, with no, with no rahmah, mercy for the people, they become the leaders, then that is a state of loss of trust. That is a sign of the Day of Judgment. And we see a lot of that. Twelve, knowledge will subside and ignorance will prevail. Rasulullah says in the hadith narrated by Bukhari, مِنْ أَشْرَاطِ السَّاعَةِ أَنْ يُرْفَعَ الْعِلْمِ وَيَثْبُتَ الْجَهْلِ وَيُشْرَبَ الْخَمْرِ وَيَظْهَرَ الزِّنَى Rasulullah says, some of the signs of the Day of Judgment is that knowledge will be lifted up and ignorance will replace it. The knowledge will be taken away and ignorance will be established in the hearts and minds of people. How does that happen? Would there be a knowledgeable person who goes to bed in the morning they lost all of their knowledge? No. Rasulullah says in the hadith, Allah does not take away the knowledge by taking it away from the hearts of the people but takes it away by the death of the religious learned men. Till when none of the religious learned men remains, people will take as their leaders ignorant persons, who when consulted will give their verdict without any knowledge. So they will go astray and will lead the people astray. Rasulullah is saying that Allah will not take the knowledge away from the hearts of the people, but Allah will take away the souls of the scholars. The scholars will die. The people will go and ask ignorant people. They will appoint people in the position of mufti, people who do not have any understanding. And the people will go and ask them, and they will give out fatwa that is wrong, and they would mislead the people, and they would mislead themselves. They misled themselves and they misled the people. And we find that a lot of the bid'ah, the innovations that exist in the ummah today, and a lot of the mistakes in ibadah that were done by the people today, 
are caused by wrong fatawa, verdicts given by scholars, or people who claim to be scholars. And the issue of fatwa, unfortunately, is taken very lightly in these days. In the time of the Sahaba, they would run away from giving verdict. They wouldn't like to give fatwa. They used to say, one of the tabi'in said that I, I have seen more than 30 of the Sahaba of Rasulullah in the same masjid. And the a person with a question would come into the masjid, trying to get an answer, and every companion of Rasulullah would send him to the next person. I don't have the answer, go and ask the other Sahabi. The other Sahabi will turn him to the other Sahabi. Now the question is not even asked to us, and we would go and answer it. We would run to answer the question. And they used to run away from answering, because they know that this is mas'uliyah, this is responsibility. Umar ibn Khattab once was presented with a question. Umar ibn Khattab said, did this happen? He said, no, it didn't happen. He said, well, then go back. When it happens, then come back and ask us, and I will gather for it the ones who were in the Battle of Badr. I'll bring the Sahaba who witnessed Badr, and then we're going to consult. I'm not going to give you the fatwa myself. We're going to make shura. They didn't, they didn't even want to get into theoretical things. If it didn't happen, don't ask me about it. Now we ask a lot of theoretical questions. We ask about things that have no practical use. And we also volunteer in answering. And uh, subhanAllah, Imam Malik, he was visited by a person who came all the way from Al-Maghrib, from Morocco. He might have came even from Al-Andalus. All the way traveling to Medina. He came to Imam Malik with 40 questions. Al-Imam Malik responded with Allahu A'lam, I do not know, Allah knows best, to 36 questions. 36 out of 40, he said, I do not know, La A'lam. He only answered 6 questions, or 4. The man told him, I came all the way from Morocco. For you to tell me Allahu A'lam, I don't know. What will I tell my people when I go back? Al-Imam Malik said, tell them, Imam Malik says, I do not know. This is Imam Malik, he responds to, 36 out of 40 with la a'lam, I don't know. And subhanAllah, I hear about some people come with situations, families that are wrecked, big decisions in one's life that were based on wrong answers. They would ask somebody who would present a fatwa and it would cause so much, so much effect to the person, it, it could break up a family, it could cause a disaster in their lives, and then in the end they find out that it was wrong. They didn't even have to do it. They did it for the sake of Allah. They thought that that's the right thing to do. And then they found out that it was wrong. I mean, look at the, the ism, the sin, on the shoulder of the person who gave that wrong fatwa. And it happened once in the time of a sahaba, radiallahu anhum. They were in a ghazwa, in a battle. One of the sahaba, he got injured in his head. He had a wet dream, so he had to, he was in a state of janaba, a state of major impurity. He asked, do I have to take a shower now? And do I have to wash my head? Because when you are in Janabi, you have to wash all of your body. They said, yes, you have to wash your whole body, including your head. When water touched his head, he died. Because there was a deep injury in his head. When he washed his head, the water got in, caused him maybe infections, Allah and he died. When they came back to Rasulullah they told him what happened. Rasulullah said, They killed him, may Allah kill them. And then Rasulullah said, إِنَّمَا كَانَ يَكْفِيهِ أَنْ it was enough for him to wipe on the bandage, on the tissue that is wrapped on the injury. It was enough for him to wrap on it. Why don't they ask if they do not know? Because the cure of ignorance is asking. How come they gave him an answer? 
Why didn't they come and ask? Why didn't they come and ask me? Why didn't they ask Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa The cure of ignorance is asking. See, you could, with a small fatwa like this, in an issue of tahara, you could kill a person. Obviously, al-muradu bihada ilm al-kitab wa-sunnah wa-illa fa-inna uluma dunya fizdiyat. What is intended by this is the decrease in the knowledge of religion, not the knowledge of dunya. The knowledge of dunya is going up, it's always increasing. Knowledge in dunya is continuously increasing. These ahadith are talking about the lack of knowledge of akhirah, in akhirah, in the deen, in the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-ilm bi-shari'ah, knowledge in shari'ah. There is a time where things will even be worse than this. And this hadith is in Ibn Majah, عن حذيفة بن اليمان قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يدرس الإسلام كما يدرس وشي الثوب حتى لا يدرى ما صيام ولا صلاة ولا نسق ولا صدقة حذيفة says that Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم said Islam will erode like the marks on your clothes would erode or wash away and that time the, the color the coloring of the clothes was not permanent. So when you would wash your clothes for frequently, the color would fade away until the color is gone. Hudayfa says that will happen to Islam. Islam will fade away slowly and slowly until nothing will remain. And people will not know about salah, they would not know about siyam, they will not know about ibadah. Nothing will be known. وَلَيُسْرَى عَلَى كِتَابِ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلَّ فِي لَيْلَةِ فَلَا يَبْقَى فِي الْأَرْضِ مِنْهُ آيَةِ And Allah will take all of the Qur'an from the earth. There will not even be one verse left. All of Qur'an will be taken away from the earth. In one night. Nothing will remain. وَتَبْقَى طَوَائِفُ مِنَ النَّاسِ الشَّيْخُ الْكَبِيرُ وَالْعَجُوزِ يَقُولُونَ أَدْرَكْنَا آبَاءَنَا عَلَى هَذِهِ الْكَلِمَةِ لَا إِلَهِ إِلَّا اللَّهِ فَنَحْنُ نَقُولُهَا Rasulullah says, and there will be people left, old men and old women who would say, we used to hear our forefathers say La ilaha illallah. A long time ago, we used to hear the people say La ilaha illallah, and we're saying it now. That's all what they would remember from Islam. They would not know salah. They would not know siyam. They would not know zakah. They would not know anything. All what they would know is this word La ilaha illallah. They were old man and old woman, they would say, we remember a long time ago, our parents used to say La ilaha illallah, and we are going to say it. Salah, who is the tabi'i, who was studying under Hudayfa, when he heard Hudayfa narrate this hadith, he told Hudayfa, مَا تُغْنِي عَنْهُمْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَهُمْ لَا يَدْرُونَ مَا صَلَاتٌ وَلَا صِيَامٌ وَلَا نُسَكُ وَلَا صَدَقَةٌ Sula said, what will La ilaha illallah do for them when they don't know anything about prayer, they don't know anything about fasting, they don't know anything about hajj, nusuk, the ibadat, and they don't know anything about charity. They don't know anything. What will La ilaha illallah do for them? Hudayfa turned away from him. So he asked the question again. Hudayfa turned away from him. When he asked him the third time, Hudayfa said, Ya Sila, tunjihim min al-nar. Thalathan. And the third time, Hudayfa said, Oh Sila, La ilaha illallah will save them from hellfire. La ilaha illallah will save them from hellfire. La ilaha illallah will save them from hellfire. Three times. Because those people, يُعذَرُونَ bil Allah would excuse them because of their ignorance. They don't know salah, they don't know siyam, they don't know zakah. They don't know. They don't have the knowledge. Therefore, Allah will excuse them for their ignorance and will accept from them la ilaha illallah, even though it's just a word that they say. But it would save them from hellfire as Hudayfa is saying, because ignorance. But if the knowledge was there, then they have to pray and they have to fast and they have to make hajj and they have to give sadaqah. And this is an example of excusing due to ignorance.
عن أنس أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال لا تقوم الساعة حتى لا يقال في الأرض الله الله رواه مسلم Things will get so bad it will even get worse than this Over here people only know لا إله إلا الله Anas says that Rasulullah said there will come a time when Allah, the name of Allah will not be mentioned on the face of the earth رواه مسلم This is narrated by Muslim There is two interpretations of the meaning of this hadith Ibn Kathir says there is two interpretations One interpretation is that there will not be any Prevention of evil Because when you prevent from evil What do you do? You remind the people with Allah They say that this hadith means that There will not be any inkar al-munkar And then there's the other opinion Which takes the meaning of the hadith literally That the name of Allah will not be mentioned You will not hear the name Allah Allah On the face of the earth Things will be so bad People will be living They don't even mention the name of Allah And this is towards the end of time That's the absolute end of time And this is when the day of judgment will occur It will occur on these people Because in the next hadith narrated by Imam Ahmad يقول الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم لا تقوم الساعة حتى يأخذ الله شريطته من أهل الأرض فيبقى فيهم عجاجا لا يعرفون معروفا ولا ينكرنا منكرا رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم says a time will come the day of judgment will not occur until Allah will take all of the righteous people away from the earth Allah will take away their souls and then there will be people who will remain that they don't know anything they don't prevent evil and they do not do good Abdullah bin Mas'ud says لَيَنْزَعَنَّ الْقُرْآنَ مِنْ بَيْنِ أَظْهُرِكُمْ يُسْرَ عَلَيْهِ لَيْلًا فَيَذْهَبْ مِنْ أَجْوَافِ الرِّجَالِ فَلَيْبْقَى فِي الْأَرْضِ مِنْهُ شَيْءٍ Abdullah bin Mas'ud says that in this time all of the Qur'an will be taken away from the earth including the hearts of people. They will wake up in the morning there's no more Qur'an left. And Ibn Taymiyyah says يُسْرَ بِهِ فِي آخر الزَّمَانِ مِنَ الْمَصَاحِفِ وَالصُّدُورِ Allah will take it away to the extent that not even one ayah will remain in the hearts of people and not one letter will remain in the mushaf. It will all be taken away because the people don't deserve it. People are so bad and so evil, they don't deserve Qur'an. Allah will take it away from them and the day of judgment will occur. The next ayah, number 13, the increase of security forces. Shurta. Rasulullah says in the hadith narrated by Tabarani, يَكُونُ فِي آخِرِ الزَّمَانِ shurta. يَغْدُونَ فِي غَضَبِ اللَّهِ وَيَرُوحُونَ فِي سَخَطِ اللَّهِ فَإِيَّاكَ أَن تَكُونَ مِنْ بِطَانَتِهِمْ Rasulullah ﷺ says there will be a time when there will be security forces they leave in the morning with the wrath of Allah on them and they come back at night with the wrath of Allah on them be careful don't be one of their associates this hadith is talking about the security forces who are spying on the people and oppressing them and preventing them from worshipping Allah and spying on them if they go to the masajid, spying on them if they are making da'wah, and if they say the truth, they would take them to jail, and they would torture them and kill them. This is what it's talking about. It's talking about these security forces. It's not talking about security guards or police that are enforcing the law. It's not talking about them. Enforcement of the law is different. It's talking about the shurta, the security forces, who are guarding the rulers and the governments and they are not guarding the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The ones who are oppressing the people. And Rasulullah says they leave. They leave in the morning with the wrath of Allah on them. And they come back at night with the wrath of Allah on them. Be careful. Don't be one of their associates. Don't be one of their advisors. Don't be one of them. Don't help them or support them. Rasulullah is saying stay Rasulullah is not saying don't be one of them. Rasulullah is saying, don't even help them. Don't even be from their batana. Batana is the supporters. The ones who stay away from oppressing, oppressing the Muslims. And this has happened in the 
time of, this is not something that just exists now. It happened among some of the Khulafa of Bani Umayyah and some of the Khulafa of Bani Abbas and al Khilaf al Uthmaniyya. It has been going on for a while in the Muslim world. And it's, uh, subhanAllah, it's oppression of the people and it's a test of Allah for this Ummah. And you know the story of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal and what happened to him. Every one of the four scholars has been in a fitna because of these security forces. Whether it was Imam Abu Hanifa or Imam Malik, his shoulder was dislocated. And Imam al-Shafi'i, they were about to throw him in jail, but he was able to get himself out of it. And Imam Ahmed was tortured in jail. Ibn Taymiyyah was thrown in jail for a long time and he died in jail. And nowadays we find that many of the scholars, the righteous scholars, are censored and tortured and prevented from speaking and thrown in jail and some of them are killed. The next sign, sign number 14, zina prevails. وَيَظْهَرَ الزِّنَا Rasulullah says, إِنَّ مَنْ إِشْرَاتِ السَّاعَةِ فَيَقُولُ وَيَظْهَرَ الزِّنَا رَوْهَ الْبُخَارِ Rasulullah says in the hadith narrated by Bukhari that zina will prevail. And in another hadith which is a scientific miracle of the hadith of Rasulullah, Rasulullah says that if zina prevails until people advertise for it in public, then Allah will afflict them with diseases that did not exist in their forefathers. Rasulullah says in this hadith that if people commit zina, not only commit zina, but izhar zina means it's done in public and in open and it's advertised. Rasulullah says Allah will send on the people diseases and afflictions that did not exist in their forefathers. And that is exactly what is happening with AIDS. AIDS was a disease that did not exist before. And Allah sent it on the people because of zina. It is zina is widespread and it is public. Look at the billboards advertising zina. Television is advertising zina. Movies are advertising zina. All of these movies and soap operas and programs that talk about the relationship between men and women, boyfriend and girlfriend, romance, all of this stuff, all of this is advertisement of zina. And even advertisements of cigarettes or cars. You have to have nudity with it. That's advertisement of zina. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sending these diseases and the people should not think that if they find a cure to AIDS, then that will solve the problem. Allah will send another disease. Just like Allah sent AIDS that did not exist before, for thousands and thousands of years, humanity did not know about this disease. It is something that just showed up. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will send other diseases that will destroy the people. And this is one of the signs that will happen and sometimes partially, but in the, in the end, it will prevail. And Rasulullah says, in the hadith narrated by Muslim, this is after the time of Isa ibn Maryam. Allah will take away the souls of the believers. And then in the end, the evil people would, would remain and they would have sexual relations just like donkeys. Meaning it's like animals. There's no rules and regulations. Everything is allowed by the law. Everything is legal. Promiscuity and relations between the humans would be just like it is in the animal kingdom among donkeys. Which donkeys, everything is in public. And there is a hadith that describes that وَالَّذِي نَفْسِي بِيَدِهِ لَا تَفْنَ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ حَتَّى يَقُومَ الرَّجُلِ إِلَى الْمَرَأَةِ فَيَفْتَرِشْهَا فِي الطَّرِيقِ فَيَكُونُ خِيَارَهُمْ يَوْمَئِذٍ مَنْ يَقُولُ لَوْ وَارَيْتَهَا وَرَأَى هَذَا حَادِ Rasulullah says, this ummah will not end until a time will come when a man would approach a woman and would sleep with her in the middle of the road, in the middle of the street, in front of everyone. Rasulullah says that the best of them in that time the most righteous of the people in that time will come and tell them, if you could please go behind that wall. Just go behind that wall. That would be the best of them. He's not preventing them from the zina. He's not screaming or shouting at them. He's just telling them, excuse me, if you can please go behind this wall. That would be the best of them. 
And that is time of evil. Now in the issue of zina, zina is widespread now, although not to this extent. But zina is widespread now in the Muslim and non-Muslim world. And we have to be honest with ourselves because and sometimes we always speak about the illnesses of the non-Muslim world. But we need to wake up to the fact that the non-Muslim culture, the culture of Hollywood, is now a worldwide culture. The satellite is spreading it all over the world. People in the most holy places are seeing exactly what you see in the TV here. It's not any different. And subhanAllah, you find that the satellite dish that brings you channels from all over the world is now over huts and houses in some parts of the Muslim world that are so secluded and far to reach that the dua, the colors of Islam, might not have been able to reach to them in decades. Maybe da'wah has not reached to those people in the Muslim world in decades because they're living on the top of a mountain or in the middle of a forest, but you would find that Hollywood reached there. The movies and the, the nudity and the destruction of this culture has gotten all, is now it's global. It's not something that is lo- local. It's now globalization. And subhanAllah now, the stories that we hear in the Muslim world and some societies that used to be conservative, now is different. Things are getting worse, unfortunately. And one of the reasons is that we are promoting that. Not only it's the media, but we are also promoting that. Because we have made halal difficult and haram easy. Look at how difficult marriage is. We, in our cultures, in the cultures of the Muslim world, we have made marriage almost impossible for some people. Some people, they cannot get married. The financial burden and responsibility that is thrown on the, on the shoulder of the man and woman before marriage makes it very difficult for some people to marry. For some people, it's impossible. But then zina is very easy. The laws make it very easy. The media makes it very easy. And subhanAllah, in the time of the Sahaba, marriage used to be a very, very simple thing. They could, the khutbah and the marriage could all occur in a few hours or days. Very simple. And the burden is very little. Now you have to buy, you have, there has to be a mahr, certain amount of money, there has to be jewelry, there has to be furniture, there has to be this, there has to be a degree. I'm seeking for my daughter, a medical doctor or a, an engineer. You find that in matrimonial, in Muslim magazines. You find that a 28 year old girl, she's looking for a husband from her country, and he has to be a medical doctor or an engineer. If he's the closest person to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's no, it's no good. The person has to be a medical doctor. Isn't this making it difficult on the, the Muslims to marry? Rasulullah sallallahu says, If a man comes to you and wants to marry your daughter and you are pleased with his religion and with his character and you refuse to marry him, then there will be fitna on the world and there will be great corruption. Rasulullah is talking about the social corruption that will happen. The social corruption that will happen and will end up harming you. Because all of us are in the same boat. We all suffer from this together. We are all raising up our daughters in the same environment. And we will all pay the price for this if we don't rectify the situation. And Rasulullah noticed the, the exact terms that Rasulullah used. خُلُقَهُ وَدِينَ You're satisfied with the religion and the character. The deen, the salah and the ibadah. But also character is important. I mean, there could be a religious person, but very cruel, rude. So Rasulullah said character. A character also has to be good. It's not only the religion, but the religion and the character. On the other hand, if somebody has the best character, uh, but doesn't have any religion, it's also not accepted. These two have to be together. And subhanAllah, 
one of the uh, scholars was saying that the rich people, they're doing a great sadaqah and reward. If they would marry, if they would be the, the cause for the marriage of three couples or four couples in their lifetime, they sponsor marriage rather than giving money to the beggars that you find on the doors of masajid. The scholar was saying that these beggars who are on the doors of masajid, they're businessmen. They might be businessmen. There's, and this shows you that even in our sadaqah, we need to, we need to reevaluate how we even give sadaqah. I mean, we are very emotional people. We see somebody crying or begging, and this is something that you would see in some Muslim countries. You would find that on the door of the masajid, people are, are begging. And you find that everybody's giving them money. Everybody's giving them money. But then, you would find the people who are in true need of money, they don't get the sadaq. They don't get the help. For example, a young man and woman who want to get married and they don't have any money to do that. There's a great reward in bringing them together and forming this family. يقول القرطبي عن الحديث الأخير لو وريته وراء الحائط في هذا الحديث عالم من أعلام النبوة إذا أخبر عن أمور ستقع فوقعت خصوصا في هذا الأزمان. This hadith that I mentioned, a man and woman would make zina in the street in front of everyone. Al-Qurtubi says this is a sign of the prophethood of Rasulullah he, he talked about things that happened, especially in our times. Al-Qurtubi was describing the situation in his era in Al-Andalus. The Muslims in Spain, what caused them to lose this stronghold of Islam that was at one point a khilafah in itself? The khilafah was in Baghdad. The Muslim khilafah was in Baghdad. And the Muslims for a long time did not, did not agree with the concept of having two khilafah. There should only be one khalifa for the Muslims. And for a long time the Muslims were in Spain, even though they were independent from the khilafah al-Abbasiyah, but they never dared to call, call themselves a khilafah. But they became so great and so extravagant and so rich and so strong that they felt so confident in, them, in themselves that they formed a khilafah. And that was the first time in the Muslim world that there were two khilafah existing at the same time. A khilafah in Qurtuba and a khilafah in Baghdad. So Spain was a stronghold of Muslims for one time. How did the Muslims lose it? Now there isn't any Muslims in Spain except immigrants who immigrated. But original people who still uh, from that time, a few hundred years ago, there isn't any. How could the Muslims lose it? I mean, Islam entered into Egypt. Egypt is still Muslim, Afghanistan is still Muslim, Pakistan is still Muslim. How come Islam stayed for 800 years in Spain and it was completely abolished? I mean, Islam was erased, erased from Spain. SubhanAllah, one of the reasons it could be because of the extreme extravagance that the Muslims lived in Spain. They were so wealthy, so rich, and there was social corruption that existed among them. They say that there was one prostitute, she wrote on her forehead a po- one line of a poem, inviting others. And she would go out in the street. And Qutb was describing his time, he said, these things happen in our time. That is how the Muslims lost Spain. It was because of this. Number 15, intishar al-riba, the spread of riba. Riba, we can translate it as interest, financing, mortgage rate. It comes in different forms. But it means the same thing. It is riba. Usury is the, is the translation of the word, but that is not used anymore. They don't use usury. We have to know the terms, the present day, the modern day terms for it. And riba is one of the major sins. And it is one of two sins only. One of two sins where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has announced that he will wage war against the one who does that sin. There are two sins Allah has said that he will wage war against. 
One of them is riba, and the other one is من عاد لي وليا أذنته بالحرب. Whoever takes my awliya, my friends, as enemies, I will wage war against them. These are the only two sins Allah subhanahu wa taala said that He would wage war against. And Allah subhanahu wa taala says in Quran. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will wage war against you And Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu says in the tafsir of this ayah That on the day of judgment the one who uses, who deals with riba Would be resurrected as if devil is obsessing the person And he will be given weapons And he will be told استعد للحرب Prepare for war. They will give him weapons and tell him go and fight. You're fighting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Bayna yaday yadhar riba Approaching the day of judgment, approaching the hour, riba would be widespread. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says in this hadith that riba one day will be very widespread. And this hadith is narrated by At-Tabarani. In the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, there were two types of riba, riba al-fadl wa riba al-nasi'ah. Riba nasiya is the type of riba that is based on time. And then there is riba al-fadl, which is when you trade gold for gold and silver for silver, and you add an amount, so you're trading the same commodity, but you're adding an amount that's called riba al-fadl. That type still exists, but now the, the, the branches of riba are mostly among the category of riba nasiya. And in the time of Rasulullah the traditional form of it was in the time of jahiliyyah, in the time of ignorance, which Rasulullah prohibited, that form was, I would borrow money for you, from you, and you would give me a grace period of a month or so. And if I pay you within that month, I pay you the same amount of money. If I go past that date, then I start incurring charges of riba. That is called riba al-nasiya. It's basically very, very similar or almost the same deal that exists on a credit card. They give you a grace period of a month or so. If you pay within that month, then you're fine. If you go past the due date, then you start incurring charges. And that is the form that existed in the time of Rasulullah when it was called riba nasiya. They used to say, taqdi aw tarbi. Pay me now, you pay me the same amount, qada. If you go past it, then tarbi. You add more money to it. And nowadays, it has been formulating itself and presenting itself in, in many, many forms. Uh, mortgage rates, for example. Financing. Most of the... You could rarely find any corporation, any company, that doesn't have a long-term loan or a short-term loan. Everyone, almost everyone in America, is living on a loan, some type of loan, one way or another. Some kind of debt that is incurring charges of riba. Therefore, Rasulullah says in the hadith, which really exemplifies this time that we're living in. يأتي على الناس زمان ليأتينا على الناس زمان لا يبقى منهم أحد إلا أكل الربا فمن لم يأكل أصابه من غبار. Rasulullah says a time will come when everyone would deal with interest, and whoever is not dealing with riba, then the dust of riba would befall them. Riba is so widespread that almost everyone is dealing with it. And the exceptions who are not, even if they try not to deal with it, the dust of riba would befall them. Therefore, you're going to be harmed even though. And this hadith would mean that the transactions are based on riba 
And if you try to get away from it, Alhamdulillah, you'll get away from a lot of it, but still you would be affected because it's a worldwide economy. Where do we leave our money? We leave it in a checking account. Now a checking account is not based on riba. Now, by the way, many checking accounts are. But some checking accounts do not pay you interest. But you are still affected by the dust of riba because you are leaving your money with an institution that is based 100% on interest. Even though you are not dealing with interest yourself, but the dust of it, and you know, this is a figurative speech. In the old days, roads were not paved. It was dirt roads. And when a horse would pass by or a donkey or a camel, even though if you try your best to stay clean, this form of transportation will come by and throw some dust on you. So it's telling you that try to be clean as much as you can. That's good, but the dust will come over you. And this is the same thing now. Try to be clean as much as you can, but the dust will still come over you. And it is a disaster. Really, we're living in a... Because riba, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَمْحَقُ الله riba. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will destroy riba. Therefore, there's no blessing in riba. Therefore, a world that is dealing with riba will not see blessing. So we're all harmed by it, even if we're not using it. And the worldwide economy now is, is almost... Everywhere you go, everywhere, there's no exception. It's based on, I mean, one central pillar of the economy of the world now is interest rates. SubhanAllah, as if the whole world is immersed in an ocean, in a sea of interest, riba. So these are very evil times in this sense. And Islam is not only the rituals of ibadah that we do, but Islam is a comprehensive system that teaches us how to deal with our money. Because if we're going to separate money from Islam, and we're going to separate politics from Islam, and we're going to separate our social life from Islam, what, would, what did we leave Islam with? And the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Islam, which is comprehensive, we're trying to alienate it from everything. Rasulullah says, A time will come when people would not care where they get their money from, whether it is from halal or haram. People just want to make money. That, that's their objective. They have a goal, a set goal, and that is wealth. Make money. It doesn't matter how. They'll try to abide by the legal system of their particular country, but when it comes to the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's irrelevant. And for such people, they would be held accountable and asked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the Day of Judgment every penny, how did they make it and how did they spend it. These are one of the four questions that everyone will be asked. Your money, your wealth, how did you make it and how did you spend it? Every single cent, every penny you'll be asked about. Number 16, the decoration of al-masajid, the mosques. And again, this is a sign that has occurred. The hadith is narrated by Ibn Majah on Anas ibn Malik. قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا تقوم الساعة حتى يتباه الناس في المساجد. Rasulullah says a time will come when people will be proud or will, will compete in building masajid. Which masjid is more beautiful? So we compete with each other on building masajid. And in another hadith, uh, actually this is, it is narrated by Bukhari, but it's not a hadith, it's an order of Umar ibn Khattab. Qala Abu Sa'id, kana saqful masjid min jarid al-nakhl, wa amara Umar bibna al-masjid. وقال أكن الناس من المطر وإياك أن تحمر أو تصفر فتفتن الناس أبو سعيد الخدري says that the roof of the masjid of Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم in Medina 
was from the leaves of palm tree. So they would bring branches of palm tree with leaves and they would pack them one over another and that would be the roof. Obviously that roof only served the purpose of providing them with shade. It was not waterproof. So water would seep through. When it's rain, the whole masjid would be soaked. That was the situation of the masjid in the time of Rasulullah and in the time of Abu Bakr. Nevertheless, that was the most blessed masjid in the world. And that's where da'wah came out from. Very simple. So it's not a matter of building, how beautiful it is. That's never the criteria. The masjid of Rasulullah was the most blessed masjid in the world. That is where the da'wah of Islam spread. And it didn't even have a waterproof roof. In the time of Umar ibn Khattab, he brought in a builder and he told him, build a roof that would, would be waterproof, no rain would come through. And then he told him, and beware, do not use red or yellow, because these are bright colors. He told this construction builder, don't use these two colors, because you would then distract people. He would distract people. And then Anas ibn Malik said, وَقَالَ أَنَسْ يَتَبَاهَوْنَ بِهَا ثُمَّ لَا يُعَمِّرُونَهَا إِلَّا قَلِيلًا وَقَالَ ابْنَ عَبَّاسْ لَتَزَخْرِفُنَّهَا كَمَا زَخْرَفَتِ الْيَهُودُ وَالنَّصَارَةِ Anas ibn Malik says, a time will come when people will be proud with the masajid and they would not establish, they would not revive them. So they would be proud with the masjid but nobody would go to the masjid. They just build the masjid for the sake of building a masjid but the masjid is dead, it's not revived. And Ibn Abbas says, a time will come when you will decorate your mosques like the Jews and the Christians did. And now we're beyond, we're way beyond the issue of using red and yellow. Now it's gold and big huge chandeliers and calligraphy that has every bright color you would imagine. When Umar ibn Khattab was saying, don't use yellow and red, it wasn't particularly because of the color yellow and red, it was for the issue of distraction, because he said so that he would not distract the people, and these were the two uh, colors that existed in that time, in terms of Allah painting, because they used to use al-asfar, this is a material that would give a yellow or red color that was a type of dye, that was a particular dye that they uh, used on their clothes and they also used it to paint so he told the construction builder don't use that, and you would find that, subhanAllah, the sajjada that people use for salah, it has every distraction that you could imagine. And now, there's a company in Turkey that invented this new sajjada. And this sajjada has border lights all around it. So you could use it at night time, if it's dark. And it also calculates how many rak'ah you did. So that if you miss any rak'ah, it would make an alarm sound to remind you that you have missed a rak'ah. And they asked some shaykh for the fatwa of using the sajjada. They said, this is haram. It is distracting you from salah. It's an electronic sajjada that would calculate how many sujood you made, how many ruku' you made, and then would announce it to you. And it has border lights around it so that even if you're a pitch black darkness, it wouldn't matter because it has lights around it. High-tech sajjada. This is distraction for salah. It distracts the people from salah. Abid Darda, he says... Sahabi al-Jaleel, the companion of Rasulullah Abu Darda, he says, إِذَا زَوَّقْتُمْ مَسَاجِدَكُمْ وَحَلَّيْتُمْ مَصَاحِفَكُمْ فَالدَّمَارُ عَلَيْكُمْ Abu Darda says, if you decorate your mosques and the Mus'haf, the Qur'an, 
then destruction will befall you. That's a sign of destruction. If you decorate the masajid and you decorate the mushaf, and that's the exact thing that we're decorating now. You find these very expensive uh, special print of mushaf written with gold and wrapped in very expensive cloth, type of cloth, uh, some velvet and very expensive. And then you find also the masajid are built and huge amounts of money are used and sometimes they are built by people who don't even pray. By kings or presidents who don't even pray. They're not known for praying. And they would spend these huge amounts of money for building such a masajid that people are not going to use and nobody is going to... You find the market is bustling and all of the people are in the market next to the masjid. The masjid just looks beautiful but nobody prays in it. And then you find in some places that the masjid is so beautiful and wonderful, it's used as a museum but in the time of salah nobody prays. For people to come and see and be impressed with the wonderful Islamic architecture. Abu Darda says this is a sign of destruction. And subhanAllah, that is the wisdom of Abu Darda because it's a sign of people going towards symbolism and leaving the substance. People are just looking for something that looks good. But they're not interested in any substance. And that's a sign that the people are gone. Seventeenth sign is construction of tall buildings. Muslim. says you would find the barefoot, naked, poor shepherds of goats and sheep competing in building tall buildings. And this is narrated by Muslim. Rasulullah described them as barefoot, naked. Naked, it doesn't mean that they don't have any clothes, but it means that they're so poor they could barely cover their private parts. And ala, ala means poor. Ra'asha, they are shepherds of goats and sheep. They are competing in building tall buildings. And Allah alam these ahadith, we get the indication that they are describing and talking about the Muslim ummah. They're talking about the Muslim ummah, not talking about the disbelievers. Many of the signs of the Day of Judgment, Rasulullah was talking and describing about things that would happen to his ummah. There are some signs obviously that are talking about the world in general or particular people, but when there is no indication in the hadith that it is talking about a particular people, we, we assume that it's talking about the Muslims. And this is one of the ahadith. And it is describing people who were very poor and then they suddenly became rich. And they have so much money that now they are not building for the need of buildings, but they're building in competition. Yatatawalun means that they are competing on who would build a taller building. And you can find signs of this in the Gulf, for example, because of the oil boom. People who are very poor, suddenly they have a lot of money. So now they can afford competing on buildings. When there was a time when they wouldn't even afford to have a house, and now there's competition and building tall buildings. Yatatawaluna fil bunyan means competing in building tall buildings. And these tall buildings are built in areas that could easily afford horizontal expansion. There's no need to go up in the sky. It's not New York City where Manhattan, you don't have any space. This is area that is desert and free. You can go as horizontal as you want. You're only going to hit the sand dune. There's nothing in front of you. Nevertheless, people are going way up in the sky. And that is clearly for the purpose of competition. And subhanAllah, that was a sign of the people of Ad. That was one of the tributes of the people of Ad 
أَتَبِنُونَ بِكُلِّ رِيعٍ آيَةً تَعْبَثُونَ وَتَتَّخِذُونَ مَصَانِعَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَخْلُدُونَ Their Nabi Hud told them in Quran, you are building over every mountain monuments. تعبثون, waste, you don't need them. They would build monuments on top of mountains. They're living in the valleys, but they're building monuments on top of mountains for no use. تعبثون, عبث means for waste, they're wasting their money. They're doing it out of arrogance and pride. 18, the slave woman gives birth to her owner. قَالَ فَأَخْبِرْنِي عَنْ أَمَارَتِهَا قَالَ أَنْ تَلِدَ الْأَمَةُ رَبَّتَهَا متفق عليه This hadith is the famous hadith of Jibreel. It is in Bukhari and Muslim. Uh, Jibreel a.s. asked Muhammad وسلم, about the signs of the Day of Judgment. Rasulullah said one of the signs is that the woman would give birth to her master. Or the slave would give birth to her master. The scholars gave a few interpretations of this. One of them is that there will be a time when there will be so much disobedience of the parents and children would be so rude and aggressive in their dealings with their mothers to the extent that it becomes like a slave and master relationship. So the child becomes like the master of the mother. There is no respect at all. And this is the opinion adopted by Ibn Hajar. And he says, وَهَذَا أَوْجَهَ الْأَوْجُهُ عَنْدِي لِعُمُومِهِ He says this is the most preferable opinion because it is most general, as he says. And I think we are seeing this. Before, in Muslim and non-Muslim societies, there was a lot of respect for the elder and the parents alike. And you can find this in Asian cultures, in the Indian culture, in the Hindu culture, and in cultures around the world, even in America, which is a... 200 or 300 years old. I mean, the U.S. as we know it now, it's not very old. But you would still see that a few generations earlier, there's a big difference in the way children used to deal with their parents than if you look at it now. Now, you would find that, I mean, at the age of 18 or even earlier, children would break off from the family and they would not see that they have any obligation whatsoever towards the parents. And that is by law. After the age of 18, the child does not have any obligation towards the parents. There is no right whatsoever. They're independent, completely independent. I mean, if the parents take their child to court, the son or daughter is 18 years old, they cannot get anything from them, nothing, by law. And they even go beyond the law. I mean, we're now talking about the law, which is supposed to be the ethical method. Now, the practice and the actions of the people is even worse. And if you hear horrific stories, I think we don't even need to go into that of how the children treat their parents. When in Islam, and this is a teaching of Islam, but it's also subhanAllah common sense, the parents have done so much for the child. Therefore, they come second to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of our obligation. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who has done us the most. We owe Allah everything. And He owes us nothing. That's why our gratitude should be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Second are the parents. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَقَضَى رَبُّكَ أَلَّا تَعْبُدُوا إِلَّا إِيَّهُ وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Quran that Allah has decreed or ordered, prescribed, that you worship nobody but Allah and you be kind toward the parents. Immediately after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned his name, he said, you be dutiful towards the parents. The suffering that the mother has went through and the father both for bringing a child 
when uh, at a moment when the child was helpless, couldn't do anything, and the only survival was through the parents by what Allah subhanahu wa taala has given them of abilities. That's the only way that the child could survive. And then subhanallah, at the age of 15, the child does not pay anything back. Then that's the ultimate degree of being ungrateful, social corruption that existed. For further information, please contact Al-Bashir Publications and Translations at 1-877-745-3330 or 303-574-0095. Our fax number is 303-373-0943 or visit our website at www.albashir.com That's www.al-b-a-s-h-e-e-r.com You can also write to our address at 10515 East 40th Avenue, Suite 108, Denver, Colorado, 80239-3264 Please proceed to the next CD.